Once again, we are continuing from last week's uh, passage from verses 1 through 23, and we saw how an angel commanded the Roman centurion Cornelius to send for Peter. But Peter was a Jew, and it was taboo for Jews to associate with Gentiles. And as things stood in those days, there was no way that Peter would have accepted the invitation to come to a Gentile's house. So what could possibly make Peter go? Well, God gave Peter a deeply disturbing vision, and he commanded him to eat all sorts of unclean animals. And Peter, being an Orthodox Jew, who throughout his life had kept a kosher diet, he objected. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But then God answered Peter, What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. And as we read, Peter saw this vision three times, just as Cornelius' three messengers arrived. And it is then that the Holy Spirit made clear to Peter the meaning of the vision. I have sent these men, Gentiles, do not raise any objections, do not show uh, distinctions, but go with them. But you know what God demanded from Peter was a costly obedience. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Because you see, Peter, Peter knew that the Jews, inclu- including some Christians, would never forgive him for going to the Gentiles. You see, this was the kind of thing that if you did it, if you did it just once, you could never live down the stigma of it. And this was the kind of thing that would uh, uh, sully and ruin your reputation forever. What God demanded of Peter was a costly obedience. But Peter, he obeyed. He welcomed the Gentile messengers as his guests, and next day he left with them to Caesarea. And that brings us to the first, thing, uh, f- uh, first point of focus this morning, which is the meeting. The meeting. Now, Caesarea is a town about 40 miles north of Joppa. And the journey took Peter and his six Jewish brothers, and we know there were six from chapter 11, and Cornelius' three messengers, 10 people total. It took them two days to travel that distance. And once Peter arrived, he found a captive and eager audience. You see, Cornelius had called together his relatives and close friends. You understand, don't you? Wouldn't you have done the same thing? Wouldn't you call all your loved ones if an angel says to you that you can hear a message from God? Of course you would. And Cornelius, he knew, he understood that this was perhaps the most significant event of his life. This was the most important event of his life. And he invited all his loved ones so that they may also hear 
the message from heaven. Now, I think this is a good place to pause for just one moment and reflect a little bit. Do we think this way about hearing God's word? Are we as eager, zealous to hear God's word as Cornelius was? I remember some years ago uh, during one of our vacations, uh, uh, Yuri and I and with the kids, we visited a couple of uh, well-known churches in the area and they had reputation for being good, solid biblical churches. And one church, um, the service was about an hour long. No scripture was read until the last five minutes of the service. And what the preacher said about it had really nothing to do with scripture. Another church, uh, they did everything except preach the word. There was singing, there was collecting of offering, there was everything except reading of scripture and preaching. I remember thinking, how is this possible? That really is the question. If, If a church does not proclaim God's word, why bother? On the other hand, but if the church preaches the word of God, are we as eager to hear a message from heaven as Cornelius? Are we so zealous for our loved ones to hear God's word as Cornelius? Do we we call our loved ones? Do we present ourselves as a captive audience to hear God's word? There's something to reflect here, isn't there? So Cornelius was eager to hear, and he was also humble. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. You know, I think his intentions were good. But good intentions do not make wrong actions right. It was right for Cornelius to be humble before God's message. But it was not right for Cornelius to worship the messenger. And so Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. Do you know what that is? That's the Reformation principle of soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. God alone deserves worship and adoration. Now certainly, we honor and we admire those who serve the Lord. And there is a measure of respect that is attached to the messenger when they bring the message from God. But be that as it may, the message is of infinitely greater importance and glory than the messenger. And so Cornelius, I think he meant well. I think this shows, and already we have learned from last week's passage, that he was a devout man. This is not a man given to worshiping people or idols. And I think he meant well. He has such reverence such expectation and eagerness to hear from God's word that it caused him to fall before Peter. But Peter, he does something amazing. Because Peter himself is someone who has received God's message with humility. You see, it was customary for the Jewish people to consider themselves better than the Gentile 
dogs. That's what they used to call the Gentiles. But notice what Peter says. Stand up. I too am a man. I am like you already. Peter is showing himself as having been transformed by the message from God. What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. And Peter says it was unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That the word unlawful is probably not the best translation here because the Greek word is actually different than the word that we usually use for law, nomos. It's a different word. And what, uh, what Peter is getting at is that it is taboo. It is not acceptable. It is something that the society frowned upon. You know, every community, every society has spoken and unspoken rules that if you break them, you can no longer be part of the community. And Peter is saying, this is not something that a Jew can do. You know that. But God has shown me what God has made clean, I cannot call uncommon. And so what we see here in this meeting, both from Peter and from Cornelius, is the shining the light on the authority of God's word. Peter himself has already been transformed out of his lifelong habit, expectations, mindset, and philosophy by the word of God. And Cornelius, as he receives the message, he shows a tremendous eagerness, respect, and honor. So that's the first point, the meaning. Second, the message. Now, Peter asks for uh, why he was sent for, and once he hears Cornelius' explanation, he says this, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. You know, for the Jewish people, it was a settled truth that God favors Orthodox Jews but opposes the Gentiles. And it was a settled truth for them that God, it's the same mindset that, that was so obvious to them that God remembers the extravagant offerings of the rich but pays no attention to the widow's two small copper coins. And it's the same mindset that was so deeply offended that Jesus dismissed the Pharisees but welcomed those with shameful pasts. Because everything about the Jewish notion about God was based upon God's preferential treatment of the people who were born right, who had a good upbringing, and who led a respectable life. But what Peter himself realized and says to Cornelius is that God does not smile upon the things we think are critical. Now, it is important because when Peter says there is no partiality with God, that does not mean that nothing makes a difference to God. And unfortunately, some people read this passage and they hear Peter say there is no partiality with God and then they make a leap that's unwarranted and they say God doesn't care who you are, God doesn't care what you believe. Whether you are Christian or Buddhist, 
God loves you the same. Now, that is an improper and unwarranted conclusion to draw from this passage because if nothing makes a difference to God, then Cornelius did not have to leave paganism to embrace Judaism, and then he did not have to leave Moses to embrace Jesus. If nothing makes a difference to God, then Cornelius would have been just as acceptable to God as a pagan. But as a point of fact, Cornelius was not acceptable to God as a pagan. He he was called out of pagan to embrace the law of Moses. And having embraced the law of Moses, he needed to be led to Christ. Some things matter to God. What Peter is saying is that the, the things that we think are critical, our nationality, our ethnicity, our birth, our upbringing, our career, our wealth, these things that we care so much about, these things God does not care about. And these things do not confer on us either advantage or disadvantage because they do not matter at all. What then does matter? What matters is how we respond to God's message. Notice how Peter continues. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And he almost makes, blurts out this excited exclamation. He is the Lord of all. I think it's beginning to dawn on him with clarity that he had always thought that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews, but he's beginning to realize Jesus is the Lord of all people. And then Peter goes on to explain and and proclaim the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And notice how Peter unpacks that message, that good news of peace. First, verse 37, Peter says, beginning from Galilee, after baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So the good news of Jesus Christ begins with his life. Jesus lived his entire life righteously in the power of and in the presence of God's Holy Spirit, with the blessings of the God, the Spirit of holiness, with the empowering of that same Spirit, meaning everything that Jesus did had a full and complete blessing and approval of the Holy God because Jesus did everything righteously, And he did everything well. And he proclaimed the good news. He did good healing and freeing, liberating those who are oppressed by the devil. And the point about this, it's, it's interesting, and I think it's something that we forget. If you read everything that Peter says in this passage, you can get through it in a couple of minutes. And you obviously realize that this was, this is a short summary of the sermon that Peter preached. 
And if we put together everything that the New Testament teaches about the life of Jesus Christ, we learn that Jesus lived righteously in the power of God's Spirit. Why? For this reason. Even the people who are born from the best and the right family, people who had the, the best kind of upbringing, best kind of education, even such people have no righteousness to offer to God. Because the best that man, no matter who or she may be, the best that they can offer to God is stained by sin. But Jesus lived righteously so that whether you are born right or wrong, whether you have the right kind of upbringing or not, you can borrow the righteousness of Christ and offer up the perfect righteousness of Jesus to God as your own. That's why the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of peace, doesn't begin and end with Jesus died for me on the cross, but it begins with his righteous life. We have no righteousness to offer to God, but we can offer up to God Jesus' righteousness as our own by faith. And then Peter continues, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, Peter calls the cross the tree. Uh, it shouldn't surprise you that there is an actually a Greek word for the cross, but that's not the word that Peter uses here. He calls it tree, and he's doing that in order to link with Deuteronomy chapter 21, because it says uh, he... Uh, who dies hanging on a tree, has been cursed by God. And so what Peter is communicating is that the righteous one, who did everything well, this holy one died the accursed death of a sinner. But the curse that he bore was not his own. Between the Lord Jesus Christ and the believers, there is a two-way exchange. When we put our faith in Jesus, then we receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as our own righteousness. Faith dresses us with Jesus' righteousness. But mercy lays our sins on Jesus. His righteousness comes to us, our sins are laid on him. And this, and this is why Peter says he died, they killed him on a tree, he died on a curse that the righteous one, he bore our sins. And then Peter crowns this glorious work of atonement by saying, God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Peter is among the many eyewitnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he was called to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Do you see that Jesus is the good news of peace? Jesus' life his death, his resurrection, and return. That's the message 
good news of peace. Our trust in Jesus. And because of faith, we are made one with him who died, who lived, who died, who rose, and who will return. That, that is the only way to have peace with God. And it is the only foundation upon which Cornelius and you and I can build an enduring life. So that's the message. And thirdly and lastly, and unfortunately briefly, and Lord willing, I intend to pick up on this and develop it a little bit more next week. We paid attention to the meeting and then to the message. And finally, the mark, the mark. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And I'm sure you have noticed how both the event and the description intentionally echo Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Jewish believers. Because the point that is being made here is that this is the Gentile Pentecost in keeping it with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is to say, uh, some people read this passage and think of it as the pattern that every Christian must follow, that every Christian must experience their personal Pentecost. Uh, there is no personal Pentecost any more than there is a personal crucifixion or there is a personal resurrection or personal ascension of Christ. These are the epoch-changing, cannot-be-repeated work of redemption that God is carrying out. Just as there is no personal incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, ascension of Christ, there is no personal Pentecost that every believer needs to experience. Rather, the point is that just as the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews, and now the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in Samaria, the Holy Spirit has now come upon the people who represent the ends of the world. And the point is, again, God shows no partiality, whether Jew or Gentile, born well or not, according to their standards, whether you have good upbringing or not, whether you have a wonderful resume or rather a shameful past. Faith in Christ receives the gift of God's Spirit. No partiality. But God gives his best gift to all who would believe. And this gift is visibly represented in the mark of baptism. Notice what Peter says. Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You see, baptism is the visible representation of the, the, the gift, the graces that come to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter recognizes that these Gentiles, since they have received the reality 
You can't keep from the Gentiles the sign, the symbol. They have, the, they have received the thing that the baptism was a sign and a seal for, and therefore Peter says they need to be baptized. And here, let me just touch upon the significance of this baptism. Baptism is our Father's gracious gift. There is a tendency, I think, for people to think of baptism as a statement of what people are saying to God when their faith is demonstrably strong, when they are making a choice for God. They think baptism is a statement that they are making to God about their strong faith. But what happens when inevitably as we live through the hardships of life, when we struggle with sin, we feel defiled and our faith seems so small. Because when in the course of our life, through the hardness of life and struggling with sin, when we realize that, that we are struggling, that our faith is not as strong as we hoped it was, then in that moment, if you have always thought baptism as a statement that you made to God when your faith was strong, then only thing that baptism will do is to condemn you and remind you that you have left behind a strong faith and you are no longer the man that you used to be. See, that's the great weakness of thinking of baptism as a statement that you are making to God when your faith is strong. But if we remember that baptism is our kind Father's gracious gift to struggling believers, when we remember that baptism signs and seals the promise, notice what Peter says, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the meaning of baptism, not a statement that we are saying to God when we are strong in our faith, but a promise that God gives to us when we struggle. Because when we think about baptism, it is not a condemnation of a faith that used to be strong but is weak now, but rather God is repeating to you the precious promises. Everyone who believes will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And that's the gospel message, isn't it? When we think about baptism as our statement to God, when our faith is strong, inevitably, one day it's going to condemn you. Why? Because life is hard and we do struggle with sin. You will feel defiled. You will feel weak, broken, and shattered. And baptism then will only remind you that you used to be strong. But if baptism is God's kind and gracious gift, then it reminds you there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ because everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, the point of baptism is not to be a reminder of your past decision, but it's to be a reminder a promise and a seal 
of the grace of God that never changes. That's what it means that peace with God. And so, loved ones, unfortunately, we end here today, but let me leave you with this exhortation. Think often and think much about your baptism. Because in that baptism, the Lord renews his promises to you. He knows that your life is hard. He knows that you struggle, but he says to you today, and he says to you every day, everyone who believes has the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Peter to Cornelius, and in doing so, you have taught us that we who are sinners, we who have nothing to offer up to you, for believing in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven completely and fully. And for believing in Jesus Christ, we are welcomed into your presence. Father, it is beyond comprehension how we still cherish in our hearts the tendencies and the mindset of legalism. When we think when we are doing well, we feel better about ourselves. When we are struggling, we are sure that you are angry with us. Oh, Father, please drive away and drive out from our hearts these thoughts that are so unbecoming of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we as your people might rejoice whether we are strong or weak, knowing that your grace for us never changes. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.